All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm John Allen Gay, Executive Director of the John Quincy Adams Society. Looks like it's still placing folks in, uh, but we are having another one of our Wednesday evening digital discussions. Uh, I know we've missed a lot of you with the uh, the summer since we were running our big uh, summer educational program. We're going to have some fall educational programs that we'll be announcing shortly including one on uh, U.S. nuclear strategy and some of the future uh, choices that we will be confronting uh, around force structure and around the broader, uh, the broader picture of the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. security. Uh, that'll be over four, over four sessions over two weeks in October. And again, keep an eye out for that announcement. But tonight, we are going to be speaking about cyber warfare, a, uh, a very hot topic. It's been coming up more and more lately. You know, it, it runs the gamut uh, from very low-level activity to some of the really extreme things that we've seen in places like Ukraine, between Iran and Israel recently. Uh, it's a an increasingly central part of statecraft. And to speak about that, uh, and the in particular the the balance between offensive and defensive cyber strategies. Uh, we, our guest tonight is Dr. Peter Campbell of Baylor University, uh, who studies international security, civil military relations strategy, uh, international relations scholarship and its policy relevance, insurgency, counterinsurgency, the just war tradition, military culture, and cyber warfare. He's the author of two books, uh, most recently, Military Realism, The Logic and Limits of Force and Innovation in the U.S. Army, and Farewell to the Martial Statesman, The Decline of Military Experience Among Politicians and Its Consequences. Uh, he has a PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame. And I would note that he is freshly tenured, so we'll, I'm sure we'll be getting some uh, very frank opinions tonight, but Professor, uh, take it away. Some, some hot takes maybe. Uh, hi, John, thank you so much. Great to be here tonight. Um, Yes, so as, as John said, I'm going to be uh, talking to you guys tonight about um, cyber warfare. Let me share my screen so you can all see my PowerPoint slides. You guys will tell me if that works or if it doesn't. Okay, there we go. Got it. So uh, what I want to talk to you tonight about is um, statecraft and cyberspace. Uh, is the best cyber defense a good cyber offense? Uh, and as, as John said, I'm an associate professor, newly minted associate professor at uh, political science at Baylor University. Um, and John has already gone through some of my credentials and, and this isn't uh, tooting my own horn. There's, there's a very important reason why I wanna go through these again. So I have a bachelor's in philosophy, a master's in war studies from King's College London, where I studied counterinsurgency, uh, Clausewitz, uh, and the U.S. Marine Corps' combined action platoons, and uh, the use of the combined action platoons specifically in Vietnam. And then I did my uh, PhD in political science at the University of Notre Dame, where I wrote my di doctoral dissertation on military innovation and the U.S. Army from in the U.S. Army from Kennedy to today dealing with uh, all sorts of different innovations over time, including uh, the integration of tactical nuclear weapons, if you're looking for uh, somebody to talk in, in October on, on that topic as well. 
Now I'm an associate professor of political science at Baylor University. Uh, I teach international relations, the causes of war, strategic thought, and national security decision-making. The reason I bring all this up is because you'll notice that nowhere in there does it say that I have any kinds of degrees in uh, the hardware or software that is used to engage in cyber warfare. Um, and so uh, there won't be a lot of technical discussion, and I'm sure that there will be limits to my ability to answer some of the questions from the more uh, hardcore cyber warriors who might be uh, watching tonight, but I'm going to do my best. Well, so after some high-profile breaches, U.S. cyber strategists and policymakers really thought it would be a good idea to go on the offense in cyberspace. They said things like, all the advantages go to the attacker. There were, and these calls to unleash the cyber offense led me to ask, well, is it better to be on the offensive in cyberspace or the defensive? Uh, why should you care? I mean, typically I'm, I'm giving this talk to students, so they're maybe a little concerned about why they should care about this. Well, and I just asked them, do you enjoy having an open internet? I mean, the internet wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't be able to be doing what we're doing right now if it wasn't for the internet. And simply, you can just ask yourself, do you own a smartphone? If you own a smartphone and you're not in uh, mainland China, then you like an open internet. And I argue that a highly offensive cyber strategy, which might be the kind of strategy the U.S. is engaging in right now, threatens internet openness. Okay, and this isn't just about stealing emails, okay, which is, you know, in a democracy is, is a serious issue when it, when it affects the outcomes of elections. Uh, but we're talking here, actually, what, what John mentioned at the top, that cyber attacks can actually cripple countries, right? The Snowden revelations about NSA cyber capabilities have shown us that the U.S. is on the offense in cyberspace against many of its adversaries. If you look at Operation Olympic Games, right, the Stuxnet uh, worm that was sent into the Natanz nuclear reactor, uh, Operation Nitro Zeus, which was uh, uncovered as part of the Snowden revelations, uh, and this was basically a uh, plan to use cyber offensive cyber capabilities to shut off the power in Tehran, right? Uh, and we, also, we always talk about things like the Russian attacks on the Ukraine power grid, on the penetration of the US power grid by Russia. And we know that Russia and China are executing and preparing to execute offensive cyber operations. But I argue that there are actually significant dangers to a highly offensive cyber strategy uh, and policy. There may, it's true that there may never be a war of bits and bytes that decides the fate of nations, right? But actions and reactions in cyberspace impact international relations in important ways. So cyber attacks on weaker states can lead to escalation, right? So we might see retaliatory attacks by terrorist groups and unconventional forces in response to a cyber attack, as we appear to be seeing with Iran's recent behavior could be interpreted as uh, an unconventional retaliation for Stuxnet and for other cyber operations, offensive cyber operations that the U.S. has engaged in. Not only that, reconnaissance for future cyber attacks can be interpreted as the attacks themselves if they're discovered in an adversary's network, and this can actually result in conflict escalation. So for example, uh, if you want to attack North Korea's cyber army, 
you're definitely going to have to go through Chinese networks, and it's not clear how China would interpret those penetrations, and maybe even Indian and European networks, because one of the amazing things about a cyber army is that unlike a conventional army, it doesn't have, all the members don't have to be in the same place to coordinate their activities. So why are offensive cyber operations attractive to policymakers? And I think this helps explain another reason why they're, it's not just that the U.S. is being attacked, it's that there's a real attraction to using uh, cyber, cyber covert action, right? Leaders are tempted to use cyber attacks because that they seem to in, they seem to result in anonymity, so they stay covert, and they're low cost, right? There are no burning hulks of uh, helicopters in the desert to show that a cyber operation failed, right? There's a perception maybe that instead, what you see is something like this, game over, do you wanna continue? Yes or no, right? That, that cyber, cyber covert actions remain covert and are low cost. And the anonymity of cyber means, as I said, that they stay covert. So offense is attractive for these reasons to policymakers and strategists, but I argue it's also dangerous. And I argue we must confront calls for going on the cyber offense with insights about the power of the cyber defense. And really, this uh, uh, stalwart cyber defense is a necessity for the U.S. and for anybody who appreciates an open internet. If we look back to the 1990s, the United States had to reassess what the main threats were to the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union. And really, the disruption of the lines of communication, be they sea lines or air lines of communication between the United States and the rest of the world, i.e. the rest of the global economy, was seen as the greatest threat to the United States. Today, the U.S. must defend the cyber lines of communication, or silox as I call them, because these are key to international commerce and communications. And they are therefore key to U.S. prosperity and power. For example, international supply chains managed through cloud servers and near real-time information are only available through internet connectivity. Ironically, the U.S. offensive actions in cyber endangers the cyber lines of communication and internet openness, right? This can lead to national internets if we cannot secure the, uh, the internet and keep it open and it could lead to cyber balkanization of internets. This is very, this would be very bad for uh, economic, international economic integration, the, um, the center of globalization and the prosperity that the US and many of the other important countries in the world enjoy. And really a, a connectivity that is vital to bringing developed country, developing countries, uh, helping them develop. So I argue that we must develop cyber tactics, strategy, and policy with a heavily defensive component because of the dangers of a cyber offense. But I also argue that we can actually make a virtue of this necessity because of the advantages of defense. So the basic argument is that defensive cyber tactics and strategies and policies have clear advantages over offensive ones. We can import insights about the power of defense from conventional warfare into the cyber realm. 
The goals being to reduce the reliance on cyber offense because of its dangers, to help develop better cyber tactics, strategies, and policies for the US going forward. I should say this is especially important in the age of 5G, 6G, 7G, right, where the insecurity of the internet will uh, increase significantly uh, if, if the US and its allies are not able to manage that transition to wireless internet communication. So a couple of objections here. One would say perhaps technology, the technology needed to execute what you're talking about doesn't even exist yet. Well, the response to that is often conceptual work can drive technological innovation. Okay, we saw this especially in the, the nuclear revolution. Others would say, well, importing concepts from other forms of warfare to the cyber realm will fail and will hinder good cyber policy. Well, my simple response to that is that ship has sailed, right? The military concepts are already being imported into cyber and the result has been calls for an offensive cyber policy and strategy that is dangerous. Okay, another big fear is gonna be the militarization of cyberspace. And it is in fact true that the US has militarized cybersecurity. There are cyber commands and cyber units set up within all the branches of the US military, uh, not, not uh, not even mentioning the CIA, the NSA, or the DIA, or any of the other uh, organizations. So there's a fear that militaries will, the military officers will import their aggressive ideas, right, sort of cyber Napoleons, right, into the cyber realm and push for pre preemptive cyber warfare. They might quote someone like General Patton, who said, in case of doubt, attack. They fear a cyber cult of the offensive, the cult of the offensive being the, um, the way in which the leaders of Europe prior to World War I were so enamored with the offense that it drove them to engage in a disastrous war. So people fear that the military will do the same in the cyber realm uh, and the consequences will be similar. Uh, Clark and Kanaki, who have just written a book, well, in 2019 called The Fifth Domain on, um, on cyber, cyber war and cybersecurity, argue that militaries think first of offensive weapons. It's in their DNA. Okay, so they're worried about the militarization of cyberspace as well. Well, what about the military and cyberspace? Well, I argue in my own research that actually military thinkers are often not always advocating, are, are not always advocating the offense. Right? The experience of and preparation for war actually makes military officers cautious about the efficacy of force. Right? They, and I, I set this out in, in my book, Military Realism, The Logic and Limits of Force and Innovation in the U.S. Army. In war, the easiest thing is difficult because of constant friction. And so often this is the image of Napoleon that military officers see, the image of a, an audacious commander who went too far and who was defeated by friction, namely weather. Military experience, I argue, actually breeds a respect for the power of defense over offense. And as, as a number of people like Richard Betts have shown, military officers very often are less aggressive than their civilian uh, counterparts. 
Uh, a perfect example is uh, this: the following quote from Robert Gates, right? He said, it was my experience over the years that one of the biggest misimpressions held by the public has been that our military is always straining at the leash, wanting to use force in any situation. The reality is just the opposite. In more than 20 years of attending meetings in the Situation Room, my experience was that the biggest doves in Washington wear uniforms. Okay. Another historical example from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, General David Shoup, who was the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, was quite uncomfortable with the sort of loose talk that people were, uh, that was being sort of bandied about in the, in the Kennedy administration about how they were going to launch a land invasion of Cuba. And so what he did was he put a map of the United States up, and then he superimposed Cuba on top of it to show that it stretched all the way from Chicago to Washington, D.C. He then superimposed a tiny dot on top of Cuba. And everybody in the room said, well, General Shoup, what is that? And he said, that gentleman represents the size of the island of Tarawa. And it took us three days and 18,000 Marines to take it. Interestingly, that wasn't even the best example that Shoup could have used, right? He could have mentioned Iwo Jima, eight square miles as compared to Cuba's 42,000 square miles, where almost 7,000 U.S. soldiers were killed in the taking of it and 20,000 wounded. Or Okinawa, which is only 1% of the area of Cuba, where the U.S. suffered 65,000 casualties, the Japanese 70,000, almost all killed, and which led to the deaths of approximately 100,000 civilians. Okay, so launching an, an offensive attack on a well-entrenched defense is extremely difficult. So when we look at the fears of the militarized cyberspace versus reality, argues, I argue that militaries actually have insights about the power of the defense, that cutting the military out of cyber would cut us off from their insights about defense and their caution about offense. These, insi these insights, I argue, are essential in the face of the dangers of a cyber offense and the neglect of those dangers by its advocates. And after 10 years of the US military being in cyberspace through Cyber Command, we've noticed that the military is far more defensive than offensive in cyberspace, right? Clark and Kanaki, who uh, perhaps don't see the irony of their statement, uh, have one section called Surprise, Cyber Command wasn't offensive enough. That's odd, I thought it was in their DNA. But that's neither here nor there. Let's, let's move on and we can discuss that in the Q&A. We like to. So what, are the what, are, what is the power of the defense that I'm talking about? Well, really, the United States Army rediscovered the power of the defense in the Cold War. Okay? During the Cold War, scholars and the public were worried that the U.S. Army was obsessed with offense. Right? You can go back and read articles from the 1980s, especially in the Reagan administration, worrying that another cult of the offensive was happening, but with nuclear weapons. But my research shows that the U.S. Army was not focused on offense during the Cold War. The U.S. and its NATO allies were hopelessly outnumbered in Europe. This meant that the U.S. Army had to develop and did develop a very defensive military doctrine from 1962 to 1986. 
So why did being outnumbered necessitate a defensive doctrine? Well, for this, a good place to go is an analysis, a brief analysis of operations in the First World War. During the Battle of the Somme in 1916, which was a British attack on Germans on the Western Front, there was a one-week preparatory barrage by over 1,000, almost 1,500 artillery pieces that fired 1.5 million shells on the German position. On the first day of the battle, July 1st, 1916, 19,240 British soldiers are killed and 35,000 wounded, 2,000 are missing. The Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, a British and French attack on the Western Front. Not to be outdone, the preparatory barrage was doubled, more than doubled, 3.5 million shells. The French and British still sustained 400,000 casualties in that battle. Why? Because they were combating a force, the Germans, who were masters of defense in depth and they inflicted horrific casualties on the attacker. So as you can see from this diagram, the yellow stars at the beginning, so the blue arrows are the attack. The yellow stars at the beginning represent the preparatory barrage. And then you can see the attack has to pass through multiple different levels of defenses, and the defender falls back as he, uh, as he kills the attacking force, okay? And then if you look at the other end, you'll see those two orange blocks. Those are German reserves ready for a counterattack to annihilate the, uh, whatever is, remains of the attacker. Okay, so the Germans were masters at taking advantage of the uh, advantages built into the defense. So what are these advantages? Well, we can think of it first that the attacker, in order to succeed, has to move, right? They have to expose themselves to deadly fire in order to subdue the defender. This means that they need at least a three to one advantage over the defending force. The defender knows the terrain better than the attacker. The attacker must traverse ground that has been prepared by the defender. And the defender can also use natural and man-made obstacles to channel the attacker into unfavorable, in, uh, into unfavorable positions that massively increase the attacker's casualties. The defender wears down the attacker, right? When the attacker concentrates against the defender, the defender withdraws into the defense in depth, and the attacker must begin the whole process of concentrating again. Okay, so let's look at a specific example of the defense in depth in action. So the, one of the big advantages is that the defender observes the attacker. Okay, so in the defense in depth helps the defender gather information on the attacker's capabilities, modes of operation, and intentions. And one of the ways that the Germans did this is if you see this image here of the German concrete machine gun emplacement, often they would leave these emplacements, the frontline emplacements, empty. Right? So they would leave the, that position empty. The attacker, though, does not know that position is empty, and they have to deploy to eliminate the empty position. While they do that, the defender observes the, their deployment and gathers intelligence on their forces, what kind of support they have, artillery or air, what their methods are, what their intentions are. This intelligence is then disseminated through the whole defense in depth and strengthens the whole against the 
the attack that's coming at them. So one objection is that, and a common one that I hear, is that actually only the attacker holds the initiative, and that's the most important thing, because the attacker is acting, but the defender is reacting. And the U.S. Army confronted this exact criticism in the 1970s and 80s, and they said, on the contrary, the defender could have the initiative if the attacker was responding to the defender's plan. Then the defender had the initiative. And this was actually unheard of in all previous doctrine. So previously, the defensive advantages meant that there was a three-to-one ratio required. But the Army in the 70s and 80s decided that it was probably closer to six-to-one because of the range and lethality of modern weapons. Six-to-one is the ratio used in today's U.S. Army when planning operations. But the defender also has important advantages when transitioning to the offense. And this is very important for advocates of offense, right? The best offense actually starts with a good defense because the defender transitions to attack when the attacker enjoys none of the advantages of defense. Just think of transition basketball, right? Or maybe even better, an interception in, in football, right? The, the, if an interception happens, then the defensive back who intercepted it starts running back and he's facing an offense that is unprepared to be on the defense, right? So if you transition rapidly, it can cause huge problems for the attacker. Therefore, I would argue, and many others have, that the most efficient attack is when we begin on the defensive, preferably in depth, and then counterattack. And the basic idea here is that a, stall, a really good offense actually begins with a stalwart defense. So how do we import these insights into cyberspace? Well, the defender can leave the first few positions open, empty in conventional war, and they can use that to draw in the attacker. Similar in cyberspace, right? The defender can leave obvious vulnerabilities in the network to draw in hackers, right? Sort of juicy targets of opportunity. And then they can gather information on the attacker's capabilities, intentions, and very importantly, origin through this. All the while, the defender can remain concealed. Gathering intelligence on the, is one of the main advantages of the defender, and it exists also in cyber. And it help, can help overcome the anonymity problem, which is one of the biggest issues with cybersecurity is how do we know who is even attacking us? Well, I would argue that the def a, a good uh, cyber defense in depth will actually increase the likelihood that um, we can get, um, we can engage in uh, effective offense. This is not just speculative. As early as the 1980s, cyber defenders were using these methods, right? Clifford Stoll's defense of the Berkeley Laboratory Network in 1986, right? Uh, chronicled in the cuckoo's egg, right? He developed honeypots and false networks to channel the hacker and gather information on the attacker's capabilities, intentions, and origins. And it actually ended up being a West German who was selling uh, secrets to the KGB. Today, Cyber defense is uh, being used very effectively by NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center for Excellence. In the exercise Cross Swords, 
NATO was a red, a red team of NATO hackers was pitted against defenders from a private security uh, company. And the defender set up decoy machines with fictitious uh, human resources database. And the red team used credentials from this database to try and access the fictitious network. The defender in cyberspace prepares the terrain in the network that the attacker will enter. That is one of the huge advantages, both in cyber defense and defense in conventional war. The attacker in this scenario often thought they had the initiative, but actually they were responding to the defender's plan. And here's a quote from the org, one of the, the private security company's um, leaders. He said, the web hacking team spent a lot of time trying to crack the first decoy that they had encountered, the, the human resources database. We saw them trying to authenticate using all of the credentials they had collected and then run a lot of different queries and get requests to try to hack the decoy. Throughout the exercise, they did not give up. This would prove very valuable for defenders in a real world scenario, as we not only gained clear intel from the attacker's actions, it also wasted their time and resources throughout the week. And today, MITRE cybersecurity, right, though they don't like talking about this very much, uh, as Clark and Kanaki point out, has been frustrating attackers very successfully, right? So one of the things they did was they decided to, um, to, use, to alter the terrain in their network in order to mess with the attacker, to frustrate the attacker. The terrain in cyberspace is man-made, right? This isn't just natural or... Um, physical uh, terrain, and it can be manipulated in ways that is impossible in the natural world for a defender in conventional war. The defender can literally shift the ground under the attacker's feet. MITRE also, one of the things that MITRE did when they engaged in this, their defense in depth was they decided to uh, make, stop making ejection of attackers from their network their priority. Okay, when attackers broke into their network, when any attacker breaks into a network, that's the only the first step, right? The attacker then has to pivot across the network to reach their objective. Okay, to do that, they have to map the network. So as we know, the Russians were probably in the DNC's network for months, if not an entire year, before they had mapped it and then exfiltrated the, uh, the emails that, that caused such a stir. So MITRE would observe the attacker attempting to pivot across the network and map the network. But then by reconfiguring the network, they made the attacker's maps obsolete. They wasted the attacker's time. And all the time they observed the attacker, they observed their methods, their intentions, and they increased the likelihood that they would be able to discover the identity of the attacker. So if we think about it, if we think the defense's depth and depth is hard to overcome in the real world, in cyberspace, you could think that you're making progress against your adversary in, attack, in an attack only to realize that the entire battlefield is a fiction, right? That is uh, exponentially more devastating than the defense and depth in uh, conventional warfare. Okay, what if you have to go on the offense? Well, 
As I said, the cyber defender counterattacks with superior intelligence about the attacker's capabilities, methods, intentions, and origins. So uh, let me see. I, I see. I do see people raising their hands, uh, but I prefer to uh, to save those those questions until until I'm done uh, presenting uh, the entire the entire presentation. So the counterattack will likely achieve surprise, especially if the defender has been unobserved by the attacker. So in, a, in essence, what I'm arguing is that the best cyber attack is actually begins with a stalwart defense followed by counterattack. That means that even offensive cyber doctrine and strategy should have important uh, defensive elements. And just flip, flip the script here, right? The corollary of this is that if the US is on the offense in cyber war, that means that all these incredible defensive advantages that I've just set out for you are being enjoyed by America's adversaries, right? They are gaining knowledge for a potentially devastating cyber counterattack. As many people have pointed out, the early internet favored the attacker because of its openness, right? But now the technology, a number of people have argued, has shifted the balance back to the defender. And there's a, an analogy in conventional war here when we look at the German blitzkrieg, right? The new technology of tanks and aircraft communicating uh, and engaging in blitzkrieg really favored the attacker in the early stages of World War II until the defender used that same technology with the built-in advantages of the defense described above. And I would argue the same thing can happen today in cyberspace. Now, very importantly, this shift towards defense has positive implications for strategy and policy, not just the tactics of protecting one network. Okay, and this is very important. And the origin of this is this man, Carl von Clausewitz, and his analysis of international relations. Clausewitz argued that Defense also has major strategic and political advantages, not just tactical advantages, right? He argued that international relations, in international relations, there's actually a tendency among states towards the promotion of the status quo and stability and away from revisionism and instability. What that means is that Aggressive states will encounter friction from the whole, whereas the defender of the status quo, quote, will find that it has more friends than enemies. A vigorous defense will attract allies, Clausewitz argues. And I argue that the U.S. should be the status quo power in the cyber realm because it must defend the silox and keep them open. So a robust defense of cyberspace will draw allies as well, because so many depend on open silox and the cyber status quo that keeps them open. Defensive tactics, as I've already argued in cyber, have major advantages. And one of those is intelligence. As countries and companies are attacked by uh, hackers, they can share information about attacks and that strengthens the defense of everyone against those attacks. Cyber alliances and partnerships are key. 
right? Stopping attacks requires cooperation across private industry and with countries. And really aggressive cyber tactics and cyber strategy undermine trust between the US and present and potential allies, which are gonna be so vital in the, cyber, in the cyber sphere. I would also argue there's a lot of discussion about the, the fact that even small countries like Iran and North Korea, right, can punch above their weight in cyberspace. And that is true. But we also need to remember that that's also true for small countries that are allies of the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, right? So there's significant advantages uh, that our allies can bring to the table as well. Cyber, cybersecurity could even provide a new key role for NATO allies. It's less costly than building a massive conventional military, which NATO seems unable to do. And it's in their economic self-interest to build these capabilities. And also the key silocs pass through these countries in Europe. So aggressive cyber tactics, strategies, and policies endanger open silocs, and therefore, I would argue, endanger US interests and security. So to conclude, I argue that cyberspace is not necessarily offense dominant at either the tactical, strategic, or the political level. Defensive cyber capabilities have clear advantages over offensive ones. But the US appears to be on the offense at present. The military insights about the power of defense can help develop better tactics, strategy, and policies. They can help us avoid unnecessary escalation, and they can better protect US interests and the prosperity we all enjoy. In cyberspace, the US must be primarily on the defensive. And I argue here that the US can actually make a virtue of this necessity. Thank you. All right, everybody, that, that was great. We've got some questions in the Q&A, but I might uh, lead off by just asking, what do these counterattacks look like? You know, I, uh, I, I totally see the logic of you know, getting to understand the attacker better, but is, is it a symmetrical attack where, you, you know, where you're hitting back at the specific attacker that attacked you, or is it hitting at the country that attacked you? Because like with the, uh, with the Russia attacks, I don't know a lot of the details, but you know, it was this internet research agency and, you know, there were lots of reports of us hacking into that, you know, giving warnings to like some of the people that actually worked there, like, hey, we're watching you, stuff like that. But at the same time, what they were doing was attacking our political system. So if, if they attack our political system and we attack, you know, the attackers uh, rather than something that's more valuable to the other side, is that necessarily a, a, an effective response at the strategic level? Right. Yes, and I mean, that would be a strategic decision, right? Do you make your counterattack localized or do you expand it to attack other targets? The danger there is, as all with any conflict, you'd be risking escalation if you don't try and localize your response, right? And inter interestingly, in the example you use, I think it was uh, the Netherlands that actually helped the United States discover that it was the, uh, the internet research agency that was hacking, at least uh, in the case of the State Department. So that would be a strategic and a political decision, but there would be significant risks. 
to uh, expanding the conflict. That I mean, that's always possible, right? You could decide we want to escalate to de-escalate, as some people uh, have used have used that term. Uh, and those ideas are as true in conventional and unconventional warfare and nuclear war as they are in the cyber realm. So we've got a question from Rita who asks, how can states like the U.S. employ cyber tactics in a way that deters other bad actors and shows them that we're ready and capable to act if the situation calls for it, but not to be so aggressive that we would trigger an actual cyber war retaliation or give bad actors specific insights into our capabilities that they could then end. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that is that is definitely one of the key issues, right, is, is, is dealing with that question. And I don't propose to give a, um, a definitive response to that because I think that's one of the enigma, one of the, the problems that the U.S. faces. The, the one thing that I wanted to emphasize, though, is that we shouldn't get lost in thinking that the offense has all the advantages and that the defense has none. Right. That's really my main point. It's, it's not to say that this is the magic bullet for all U.S. cybersecurity. It's just to push back against those who would say offense is the only way to go. Right. I think that the I mean, you can't have you can never have a cybersecurity. Policy or strategy that does not involve offense. That's impossible. Right. Because I mean, if we just think about any future war with another near peer competitor as as is that we like to say will involve offensive and defensive cyber capabilities right even if it's a major conventional war there will be a cyber element to it and the militaries and the military in the US and in other countries are preparing for that so uh, so there will always be an offensive element i just wanted to to draw people's attention to this idea that wait defense has some pretty significant advantages uh, and we need to keep that in mind as we sort of design our policy and strategy, right? I don't, I don't propose to give us a perfect design for strategy and policy, but rather to just say that a com a, an honest conversation about the power of defense has to be part of that. I've got another question uh, asking if it's harder to pursue a unified defensive strategy since our cyber capabilities are spread out across all these multiple agencies and branches. Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, you know, there's that old saying about Mussolini and the trains running on time, right? When, when everything is, is uh, centrally controlled, there's this idea that uh, things can be, sent, can be coordinated. Um, I tend to think that actually one of the good things about having the diversity of cyber capabilities across agencies is that it breeds some healthy competition between these agencies. And that could actually lead to significant innovations in this space. So I don't think it's all bad. Um, and I also think that when we look at something like um, the war in Iraq, right, uh, there, there was a lot of, and actually since 9-11, right, there's been a lot of walls broken down between agencies. And I think that those, uh, that, that cooperation in uh, cyberspace is also in cybersecurity is also going to benefit from. Uh, we got to make sure those walls don't go back up in this uh, in this space. Another question uh, from Andrew who asks: uh, 
whether there are indicators of impending cyber warfare. You know, you did talk about how some of these uh, probing actions can look potentially offensive. So how do, how do we know if it's coming? Yeah, I mean, that is such a difficult question. Um, so what I, what I tend to say when people, and so first of all, I don't think you can, right? I, I, I think that you can, you, can prov- you can sort of build a terrain that allows you to most effectively detect cyber intrusions, right? And you can build an array of allies in the pi- private sector and the public sector that can work together to increase the depth of your defense, right? That, that's really the, the best way to, to see when an attack is on the way. But if you get in a major policy conflict with another state like China, one of the things about cyber, cyber capabilities is we kind of have to assume that China and Russia are holding back their most, and the United States, are holding back their most devastating cyber capabilities, right? For when they will, re- right? Because in a, lot of, in a lot of instances, it's use it and lose it in cyber, right? If you launch that attack, uh, it'll do damage temporarily, but then it, you know, they'll patch and then you'll be, and then that means of attack will go away, right? So there's an incentive to hold on to your most devastating cyber attacks. Now, I would say, though, that a uh, cyber defense in depth that brings together all these allies will build a significant amount of resiliency into the U.S. Um, into U.S. cyber defense and all the you know NATO cyber defense that will uh, be able to absorb a, a very very devastating cyber attack, uh, but then still keep that but recover and keep going right. Uh, the less cooperation there is, I think, could make uh, make it more likely that one of those devastating cyber attacks um, could be, well, even more devastating if that cooperation isn't there. So, I mean, a, a, a great question. Uh, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be working at Baylor, right? I'd be I'd be sipping pina coladas on the beach right now. <laughs> so we've got another question from uh, Jan from our King's College chapter. Uh, and he says, do you think we've been de facto using Facebook as kind of an obvious vulnerability to draw in hackers from, you know, for instance, the Internet Research Agency? Uh, you know, he, he talks about how some of the Russians were traced back, uh, you know, to one of the GRU intelligence units. You know, are, are there specific things out there that almost seem like they're honeypots? Uh, yes. And actually, so um, social networks are one of the. Um, I was actually, I gave this talk at the U.S. Air Force Academy and talked to their their cyber folks there. Um, They have said that they are able to build a platform like Facebook with 30,000 fictitious users, right? So so something like Facebook definitely could be uh, a honeypot that could be used to sort of sort out uh, who, who, who these attackers are and what their intentions are. Um, but I think what I said at the top, right, that cyber capabilities can actually be incredibly devastating at a kinetic level. And it's those capabilities that I'm most worried about. Uh, I, I don't know that, um, I mean, I understand that, that attacks or that, that 
trying to manipulate the U.S. democracy through Facebook is worrying, but it's not clear to me that it's actually that effective. Uh, and a number of people have, have pointed out that, you know, um, it's not clear that that manipulation swung the election in, in either direction, right? So we've got a, a question from, uh, from Rita, different Rita, uh, saying, what would you say about offense more as preparation rather than attack? So uh, in the same way that Russia hacked into our state election systems, but didn't actually act on that, uh, would it benefit the U.S. to make U.S. competitors aware of our capabilities through, uh, through threats like this, through actions like this, to create a credible threat uh, so that actors don't come against us? Right. Um, so the U.S., so private companies in the United States are, are often creating uh, or often demonstrating credibly that they can attack other, um, that they can attack other entities, uh, especially with the help of the United States. We saw this uh, with Stuxnet. Um, now, one of the issues that I had with the question was, um, as I understood it, the Russians never actually succeeded in hacking into the state election systems. And actually, the, the main uh, advantage there was that the systems were not connected to, the, it wasn't a federal system, right? Every single state had their own uh, system, and it was very hard for them to, to sort of pivot across the whole, um, the nation state of the United States for that reason. Um, so I'm not sure, the evidence that I've seen uh, says that they were actually not successful uh, in that gambit, that they tried. Uh, but that it didn't work as uh, as as some had feared, right? That was the that's the big fear, right? Is that if you can get into a voting machine and change somebody's vote, then you can really manipulate the outcome of an election. Got another question from uh, from Skyler, kind of pulling back to these uh, cyber and influence operations. She says, uh, well, the U.S. employs a lot of different deterrence methods operating across a variety of governmental agencies to defend against cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. There doesn't seem to be much of any uh, equivalent level of investment against influence operations like those that were active against the West in the mid to late 2010s. Was this a failure of imagination on our part or actual defenses against this kind of information warfare more difficult to implement than infrastructural safeguards? Right. I mean, I think it was a failure of imagination. Um, I think anyone who studied the KGB uh, probably could have told you that something like this was in the pipe, um, but I, it's, it doesn't seem like it was on the radar of policymakers at the time. I think that this is a very difficult thing to defend against, um, but I worry that we're at a point now where we're engaging in significant threat inflation when it comes to this threat. Uh, it's not clear to me that the activities of the GRU, for instance, in cyberspace, in terms of things like um, trying to sow uh, divisions within American society, are actually that effective. I'm actually worried that our response to that threat inflation could be could lead to a worse outcome for our democracy, which would be a clamping down on free speech because we're afraid that um, people are Russian bots, for instance, right? Um, so that's one of my worries that we're, we're engaged in threat inflation when it comes to this. It's just not clear to me that 
that um, that Russian influence operations were as as effective as everyone seems to think. Yeah, well, you know, and speaking of the the impact on uh, on on speech and just and I guess more the uh, type one, type two error thing. You know, after after Facebook started its crackdown, uh, you know, we we sometimes promote our programs, the society on Facebook, and we had to go through a lot of hoops to be able to do that, uh, just because they significantly raised the barriers. I mean, it used to be you just kind of needed a credit card, and now it's like you have to, you know, I had to like send in my driver's license and and all kinds of stuff like that. And it, you know, it makes sense, but it is a compliance cost that's felt across. Uh, across the sector, uh, I, I kind of wanted to draw on you know, since you also mentioned that you work in the uh, the just war tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, there's interesting issues with that around cyber. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there's there's questions about hey, can you can you answer a cyber attack with a non-cyber attack? Uh, you know, especially if it's a cyber attack that doesn't cause physical damage, you know, how do you have proportionality? Yes. Uh, and, and then there's there's also you know, natural questions around uh, discrimination in the use of force, you know, hit, hitting things that are uh, legitimate targets versus not, and not hitting things that aren't milita- uh, military targets. I remember in one of the uh, democratic debates very early on, one of the debaters uh, criticized the uh, potential use of force against Iran uh, after they had shot down one of our drones, but then said, well, we should have done a cyber attack and just shut down the power in that whole area, uh, which could have actually been a less discriminate use of force. Uh, you know, I- independent of the other questions around it, it could have hurt more innocent civilians than, you know, firing at like a harm missile at, at the rate at the radar site or something like that. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a great question. And that is something that that we're we're working on uh, right now, actually at Baylor with our own cybersecurity initiative, trying to figure out how do we take these concepts from thinkers like Augustine and Cicero and Aquinas, right, and Aristotle on uh, the ethics and the use of force and apply them to uh, the cyber realm. And I think you bring up exactly the right point, right, that it's about proportionality and it's about discrimination. One of the big problems in cyber is that if you don't know who attacked you, how can you be discriminate, right? So I would argue that an effective cyber defense will increase the likelihood that your counterattack will be directed against the right target, right? Um, but I mean, we need to think about this in terms of, you know, the, the classic example in, in, in the literature is what happens if someone shuts down the power in Chicago in the middle of winter, right? That is not gonna have temporary effects, right? People will freeze to death, right? Um, so it would really depend on, you'd have to make a decision based on what the cyber attack is at the time to then make the judgment about what is a proportionate or discriminate response to that, right? And that is true across all the, the, um, the different uh, areas of conflict, whether it be terrorism or conventional war or nuclear war, uh, cyber in many ways is no different, right? It's just a, just a different means of engaging in competition between states and non-state actors. Speaking of non-state actors, one of the questions we got is about uh, the use of proxies. You know, is it a uh, is it a viable strategy to quote unquote arm uh, foreign cyber actors to probe their own government uh, or you know some other target that maybe we want them to go after? 
and or what would be the appropriate action if a foreign power armed uh, cyber forces against us with, you know, with cyber weapons? Right. Yes. I mean, this is the, the use of cyber proxies is especially um, an important question because when we think about, you know, North Korea, right, they, they don't have very extensive cyber capabilities, right? But uh, they have significant amounts of money, right? And a lot of, and if you have a lot of money, you can, in a sense, hire cyber mercenaries, right? But those then become proxy actors. And you don't know really what that actor is going to do, right? It's similar to um, Kenneth Waltz's argument about why states won't hand nuclear weapons off to terrorist groups, right? It's important because they don't know what they're going to do with those capabilities. Um, I think I, I would always move more towards discrimination, right? So that if it's possible to discover that a proxy is attacking you, to attack the proxy, um, and uh, depending on the severity of the attack, uh, attack the state that um, that used the proxy. But again, this this just points to the the problem of anonymity, right? That if proxies are being used, then that's another level of deniability between the attacking state and uh, and the attack. And I would argue again that a uh, a stalwart cyber defense in depth would be more likely to catch those kinds of distinctions and lead to, to a better response by the U.S. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's all the time we have. But Professor Campbell, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to to chat with us. Uh, and thank you to everybody for coming out. We will uh, be sending out uh, announcements in the near future about some of these short courses that we're launching in the fall. Uh, so keep your ears to the ground for future events like this and future opportunities with the society. Uh, thank you, everybody, and have a uh, have a wonderful evening. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it.